Welcome back to Let's Get Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 127 of Let's Get Haunted. Woo! Woo, 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 woo! And we are so excited to be coming to you with the first episode of November. It is uh, officially past spooky season, but Mm -hmm. I take issue with that because I I think every day can be spooky if you're haunted enough. I would love to shout out our donors for this episode. Cassidy D, Kara H, Rachel V, Kara H, Grim L, Anna K, Brenna M, and Rachel G. Thank you guys so much. Thank you guys so, so much for donating to this week's episode. Your donations really help us keep this show running. And if you would like to donate to us or buy some of our merch, you can do so by checking the links in the show notes for this episode. You guys, something happened to us this weekend that was our own doing. But essentially, we were suffering the consequences from it. Currently. That's why if I sound very hyper, it's because I have chugged like four cups of coffee to get me through this morning. Um, two nights ago, Natalia had her going away party because she's going to Atlanta. As you guys know, we've discussed this before on the pod. And so we all were like, you know what? Go big or go home. Mm Mm-hmm. And we did both. It was really, really fun. Had a really good time. Um, But yeah, I feel so tired today uh, because what ended up happening is after the night was over and I I went home, um, all my doors to my house were locked and I didn't have a key and I didn't want to wake up like Cody because he was trying to get sleep because he had to run this like Spartan race the next morning that he's been training for for months that's crazy it's crazy and it's like the super long it's like a half marathon you do all these fucking like uh, obstacles and shit it's like an American Ninja Warrior right and so I was like okay well I'm not gonna like fuck up his life because of my poor decision (laughs) of not having a key right now so I just texted him like hey when you wake up can you let me in I'm sleeping in the car so I went to my car and I'm trying to sleep and I'm freezing because I was wearing like a mini skirt and like a like halter top with holes in it yeah like a bandana like yeah. a headscarf turned into a top it was very cute but yeah <laughs> I would you. yeah be freezing yeah I was so I was very very cold luckily in my back seat I had a like long formal dress from a wedding <laughs> that I was like able to get into because I was supposed to go take it to the dry cleaners and I didn't so actually that uh failure to be responsible helped me in the end and I was able right. to sleep in my car in this formal dress uh, and then I had a saddle pad in the back that was dirty <laughs> like covered in horse sweat and hair and like I covered my top with that part and so I was like okay this is fine this is what I deserve honestly <laughs> and so I, I was sleeping for like an hour in the back of my car and I was so like tired that it was fine I slept but I just woke up shaking because I was so cold and I was like okay this might turn into like a mystery of like how did Natalia just die in her car wearing a formal dress it's like the Donner party like you're gonna die of hypothermia yeah and there's no people to eat so like how are you gonna live so I was like okay I am just gonna go like find a way to break into my house right now like if I have to break a window that's fine (laughs) so I like went tried and looking all around my house there's no way to get in and then I realized like oh why don't I just go into my garage? Like I have the code for the garage and the whole house is packed in boxes there. So like I can find a blanket in the garage and then I can go back in my car and sleep. And then when I got in my garage, 
it's like packed to the brim, right? Because our whole house is packed up there waiting to go to Atlanta. And we have three mattresses that are stacked like dominoes. So they're like upright, like stacked, like files. And I climbed on top of those. So I'm like literally like six (laughs) inches away from the ceiling in a formal dress. Yeah. In a formal dress on like mattresses that are (gasps) balancing, but I'm like still kind of tipsy. Well, I'm still very tipsy. So it's like nothing matters to me. And out of the corner of my eye, I see, like, uh, the bag that has our sleeping bags in it. And by some miracle, the gods were smiling on me. They put the sleeping bag <laughs> box next to the the stacked beds. So I, like, just reach down from on top of these beds that I'm, like, I'm, like, literally, like, eight and a half feet into the air, guys. Because yeah. I'm on, like, a king bed that's, like, upright, right? And so then I just grabbed the sleeping bag and I wrapped it around myself. And I just fell asleep on top of the mattresses stacked like a cat. Like... <laughs> And I fell asleep immediately because it was so warm and comfortable compared to, like, the hard, cold, (laughs) cold back of my car. And I text Cody. I'm like, hey, I'm in the garage when you wake up. Like, can you, like, let me in? And then I wake up. And it's still dark outside. So it's probably, like, 4 o'clock in the morning. I wake up. Someone's opened the door to the garage. And it's Cody. And he's just like, what the fuck? And, and like, I'm like, where are you? Yeah, he's like, where are you? And I'm like, hey. And he's looking around, like, <laughs> trying to figure out where I am because I'm literally like in the rafters. I'm in the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, where are you? And I just like climb down and he's like, where did you just come from? <laughs> and I'm like, shh, just fine. We're going to sleep. And you're wearing a formal dress on top of you. Yeah. And I'm wearing a formal dress. <laughs> and then I go inside and I just like fall asleep immediately. And then the next morning he's gone because he had to leave super early or whatever but I'm walking around the yard just finding like I found my purse is on the ground my shoes are by the front door like uh this like skirt I had is like off it's like folded neatly on a chair and I'm like you know what at least in at least I like took care of myself right like I was like I'm not just gonna let myself freeze to death or like get my like favorite pair of shoes fucked up or like my skirt wrinkled you know oh my god that's incredible like I've only seen you when you're drunk be super happy and oh, you're really? like oh okay, yeah good. like love you and like me, Alyssa you might not even remember this but Alyssa was like I love you Natalia get over here and I was like no like we don't <laughs> we don't touch like we don't hug in our regular life like we don't even make eye contact for more yeah, than like yeah. three seconds so <laughs> this is like really uncomfortable for me I'm not as fucked up as you and she was just like get over here and like we hugged and took pictures and it's funny because like at the beginning of the pictures I'm just like making a peace sign like standing like four feet away from you (laughs) and then like as the pictures go on like we got closer and closer together until we're like actually hugging and smiling but I was thinking like this is weird like I feel like we violated our our friendship yeah yeah and I was like texting in the group chat I was like well I can't look at Alyssa today because she hugged me last night (laughs) maybe I'll post the pictures of us to the let's get haunted yeah that'd be cute yeah okay I'll do that yeah you guys go to at let's get haunted if you want to see documentation of our fun night out I I like literally like had a falling out with one of my friends who decided not to come do you want to talk about that I mean briefly I don't know like the this is just a particular person in my life who is like one of my good friends I've known her for a long time like almost 10 years and over the past few years they've just decided to like not come to anything I invite them to they didn't come to my son's like first birthday party but they were able to go to like the Ren Fair which has thousands and thousands of people so I don't think it's that they just don't like going out I think it's just that they don't like going out with me I don't know I just 
You know that country song that's like, you find out who your friends are. Yeah. Someone's going to drop everything. Like, get in their car, oh, yeah. come pick you up. Like, they don't stop to think about what's in it for them or it's too far, any of that shit. And that's just how I felt. I was like, you know what? This is a boundary that I'm drawing for myself. Like, I am not going to be friends with someone who talks to me like I'm trying to steal their peace all the time. Who knows? Maybe in like a week, she's going to be like, you know what? I'm sorry. Let me give you an actual explanation. Like I was actually going through some shit and you are super important to me. And I'm so sorry I wasn't making an effort. You never know. It's too late. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what you can trust, Natalia? You can trust the Lawnmower (laughs) 4.0. This holiday season, I'm giving thanks to my friends at Manscaped. I always want to make sure that whatever I get the special person in my life is something that they're actually going to use. And Manscaped's Performance Package 4.0 is absolutely giving me my money's worth. If you give someone the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0, they are going to love those products so much. Their confidence is just going to shoot up through the roof and they're going to be using them for all of their grooming needs. So you have to gift every single person you know, whether they're fake or not, whether (laughs) you made them up in your mind or they exist in reality, a Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 this holiday season so that their tree is going to stand taller if you know what I mean. Look, their Christmas bush is gonna look properly ornamentated and lit up uh, and tall and beautiful and bountiful. Much like your family will feel this holiday season because tis the season of giving and what better gift to give someone than the ability to join the 4 million people worldwide who trust Manscaped with 20% off plus free shipping with the code let's get haunted by going to manscaped.com. Yeah, I mean, joining 4 million people in anything is just sounds really fun, right? Yeah, it's like what storming Area 51 was supposed to be. Exactly. So maybe you think that your holiday spread is really good and you don't need anything extra. Well, you're super wrong because it's time <laughs> to give thanks to the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 or as we like to call it, the perfect package for their perfect package. Inside this beautiful Performance Package 4.0, you'll find the Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, the Crop Reviver Toner, the Performance Boxer Briefs, and a travel bag to help hold your goodies. Think of it as a cornucopia for balls and body. Yep, and the Lawnmower 4.0, if you didn't already know, which you should know if you listen to this podcast, has a cutting edge ceramic blade that reduces grooming accidents thanks to the advanced skin safe technology. You also can turn the 4000K LED spotlight on and off as needed so that you can see what the fuck you're doing. Plus, it's waterproof. Wow, 4000K LED Christmas lights? Exactly. Wow. wow. And you know what? I would even feel confident using the Lawnmower 4.0 when I'm blackout drunk eating a Doritos Locos taco in my friend's shower. And that really just speaks to the absolute agility and uh, luxury of versatility. The versatility of the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. And it also includes the weed whacker to chop your worst weeds in the nose and ear because who likes hairs sticking out of holes? Not me. No, certainly not. Maybe you're thinking, I don't need any like bushwhacking products. Well, you can get the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Toner Spray so that your balls will be living in turkey heaven (laughs) with those formulations. And you know what? They're like the pumpkin pie and ice cream after Thanksgiving dinner. Can't live without it. You know, you go to Thanksgiving 
for the family, but also for the dessert. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the cranberry sauce and sometimes the turkey. But the point is that all of these little pieces that make up the Performance Package 4.0 are like their own little side dishes to the main course that are your balls. I just had a thought. What if you go up, you shave his package so that there's no hair on the balls, the gooch, or the <laughs> pubic bone area, and then you grab his balls and you go like a turkey scalper. <laughs> <laughs> and then that's called Thanksgiving well, landscape style. You know what? If my man were using the ball deodorizer and all of the products that we've discussed, I might feel inclined to do that because his balls are going to be feeling smooth and silky as the whipped cream on top your pie. Yeah. You know, have you ever seen Predator? You know how the alien can smell people and so you have to like cover yourself in mud? Yeah. Well, what if the cryptids can smell someone's uh, balls and so spraying them with the crop preserver and the crop reviver is going to save their life? You know what? I believe that. We're starting that rumor right now. It's an urban legend cryptids can smell your balls. So you better use the body buffer, which is the new shower gel from Manscaped. Are you on the go? Are you taking a quick body shower because you need to go out and celebrate your friend who's moving away? But in your quick body shower, there's not really enough time to be like absolutely like scooping the balls and like making sure everything is really buffed out. Guess what? That's what the ball deodorizer is for. Mm -hmm. You give a little spritz down there, you're feeling fresh, you're feeling confident. All you have to do to get 20% off and free shipping is go to manscaped.com and enter the code Let's Get Haunted with no spaces at checkout. That, again, 20% off plus free shipping with the code Let's Get Haunted at manscaped.com. And now back to your regularly scheduled haunting. Uh, Natalia, are you ready to get into a very scary, titillating topic that I have prepared for you today? Titillate my tinkers. Let's go. Uh, all right. Our story opens up upon the bustling town of London, England during the 19th century. <gasps> oh my God. You didn't. You whore. <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me just paint this scene for you. Let me just... Let me just give you a couple sentences. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to feel this scene. Hundreds of noisy horse-drawn carriages zigzag at all hours of day and night along London's busy cobblestone streets in the Victorian era. Recently installed gas street lamps provide a yellowish glow in the evenings, allowing tens of thousands of street vendors to stay open later than ever before. Smoke from coal-burning factories leaves a haze across hundreds of miles of dull streets. A man in a cane and a top hat walks by a beggar. Irish and Indian shipbuilders trudge home after a long day's work. British bankers and stockbrokers drink from crystal glasses filled with brandy. This is the 1800s in London. Okay, as soon as I heard you say these words, I wrote them down because I was so happy about them. Cobblestone, horses and carriages zigzagging, coal, beggars, canes and hats. I was excited. It has, this story has everything. The only thing it doesn't have yet, but I'm sure it will, is fog. There's going to be stories of fog. Don't you even worry your head about it. Hell to the yes. Now, as I sometimes do, I have divided this into parts to make it easier to follow. So let's begin now with part one, London, England in the 1800s. In the 1800s, London would undergo a boom in population, 
rising from 1 million people in 1801 to over 6 million people in 1897. This rapid increase in population was accompanied by an acceleration in trade and industry, so much so that by 1825, London was declared the largest city in the world. Wow, the largest city in the world. Isn't that crazy? Because it's obviously like industrial. Not yeah, yeah, this is because the Industrial Revolution. Yes. Wow. Just like a total boom, and this is like uh-huh. now the center of all of this trade. And there's just chimneys everywhere, and they need to be swept. They need to be swept, Natalia. And who's going to sweep them? Mary Poppins. Uh-huh. Mary, no, Mary no, Poppins, that guy. She employed a man yeah. to sweep them. Yep. And there was a lizard who also sweeped. If you want to get your chimney sweeped, you can get the lawnmower <laughs> 4.0. This influx of new businesses and new immigrants necessitated a better public transportation system. And in 1836, the very first railway line was opened in London. It was a modest line from London Bridge to Greenwich, just under four miles or six kilometers long, but it was the beginning of what would soon grow into the infamous London underground we know today, connecting not just the various boroughs of London, but eventually all of Great Britain. London itself would also grow exponentially in the 1800s in order to accommodate its many new inhabitants, increasing from 122 square miles in 1851 to 693 square miles by 1896. Wow. According to Wikipedia, During this period, London became a global, political, financial, and trading capital. While the city grew wealthy as Britain's holdings expanded, 19th century London was also a city of abject poverty, where millions lived in overcrowded and unsanitary slums. Life for the poor was immortalized by Charles Dickens in such novels as Oliver Twist. In an interview with NPR, Lee Jackson, author of the book Dirty Old London, The Victorian Fight Against Filth, shares his expertise on 19th century London's dirty reputation. Quote, In the 19th century, London was the capital of the largest empire the world had ever known, and it was infamously filthy. It had choking, sooty fogs, the Thames River was thick with human sewage, and the streets were covered with mud. But, according to Lee Jackson, mud was actually a euphemism. Quote, it was essentially composed of horse dung, he tells Fresh Air's Sam Brigger. There were tens of thousands of working horses in London with inevitable consequences for the streets. And the Victorians never really found an effective way of removing that, unfortunately. In fact, by the 1890s, there were approximately 300,000 horses and 1,000 tons of horse dung a day in London. What the Victorians did, Lee says, was employ small boys ages 12 to 14 to dodge between the traffic and try to scoop up the excrement as soon as it hit the streets. Oh, my God. I'm just picturing, you know, like in a tennis game, there's like the little kids that like run out and grab the ball. Yes. And like, yeah, I'm picturing that, but it's horse shit. That's exactly what it is. Like this little dude is just like, it's my first job, Pa. I'm going to come home with some shillings. And then he's like (laughs) dodging in between horses and like carriage wheels. And he's like, where's the next horse going to shit? Like and then scoops it up really fast and now has to run with like super heavy horse. I mean, you know, you have horses. Horse poop is heavy. Yeah, it is heavy. And that's also the beautiful opening for any musical number in Oliver Twist also you know I'm just thinking like I can just hear it I can just hear it in my it's like gotta get the horse dung dad do 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 and he's just like and then like a whole chorus breaks I just gotta get the horse dung dad yeah 
gotta get the horse done. Gotta get the horse done. Eight o'clock. It's in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm just seeing. You know, this is a side note. It's not that interesting, but uh, I gotta me. get out of my head. Uh, did you know that horseshoes, like the metal horseshoes we put on horses, they were actually developed during this time for no. cobblestone streets so that working horses didn't get sore with their bare feet. That is a fun fact. Yeah, you guys, listen to this podcast. We're gonna teach you some stuff that may or may not be accurate, and you're gonna retain that information. <laughs> Uh, for later use in an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. However, Natalia, horse poop was not the only fecal matter caking London's walkways. Human sewage also frequently flowed into the streets as London's first proper sewage system would not be built until the end of the 1800s. Historian Lee Jackson goes on to say the following about what it was like to walk the streets of Victorian London. Quote, Well, the first thing you'd notice, of course, if you stepped out into the streets, would be the mud that lined the carriageways, but of course, it wasn't really mud, but horse dung. The air itself was generally filled with soot and smoke. It was famously said of the sheep in Regent's Park that you could tell how long they'd been in the capital by how dirty their coats were. They went increasingly from white to black over a period of days. If you were a respectable person, you had to wash your face and hands several times during the day to make sure that you looked half decent. You had the stench from blocked drains and cesspools below houses. It wasn't really a pleasant experience. Urine, of course, soaked the streets as well. There was an experiment in Piccadilly with wood paving in the mid-century, and it was soon abandoned after a few weeks because the sheer smell of ammonia from urine that was coming from the pavement was just impossible to deal with. Also, the shopkeepers nearby said that this ammonia was actually discoloring their shop fronts as well. I believe that. Can you just imagine how fucking ripe Victorian London yeah, is, though? I... For some reason, I don't know why, but it was just so funny to me when you said that, like, if you're a respectable person, you'll wash your face and hands. Because I'm just thinking of, like, a disrespectable person. Oh, yeah. And they just, like, are covered in, like, soot and shit. And they're just like, nice to meet you. And you (laughs) grab their hand and your hand is just has a film, like, of just grime and filth. And you're like, that is a disrespectful person. Yeah, yeah. They're not taking other people into consideration at all. Yeah. As London struggled to keep up with its growing population, it began building slums to house its immigrant and blue-collar worker populations, keeping them close to their places of employment for ease. Meanwhile, wealthier Londoners began moving out of the city center and into more spacious suburbs, allowing a relative work-life balance since they lived further from their jobs. And they also build chilies out there and Applebee's in the suburbs of London. And that is how chilies and Applebee's got their start. Well, I, I feel like this is more of an Olive Garden town because Olive Garden is the pinnacle of fine dining. And wealthy Londoners, I feel... They're classy. They're classy. The Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. You're right. Yeah. They're Perhaps a red lobster. A red lobster if you've behaved well and scooped up all of your horse dung. As is the case with so many cities and even countries throughout history, as the rich in London got richer, the poor only seemed to get poorer and poorer. And the slums only seemed to get slummier as overcrowded flats generated gallons of human waste running into the streets at all hours of day and night. According to Wikipedia, in central London, the single most notorious slum was St. Giles, a name which by the 19th century had passed into common parlance as a byword for extreme poverty. Infamous since the mid-18th century, St. Giles was defined by its prostitutes, gin shops, secret alleyways where criminals could hide, and horribly overcrowded tenements. 
During a speech to the House of Lords in 1812, Lord Byron stated, quote, I have been in some of the most oppressed provinces of Turkey, but never under the most despotic of infidel governments did I behold such squalid wretchedness as I have seen since my return in the very heart of this Christian country. So basically he's saying it's not good there. Yeah, he's saying <laughs> that even in like areas where the government is like ty- tyrannical, yeah. people are treated better than oh, in wow. London. Wow. Than in, the, than in the slum of St. Giles in particular. Wow. At the heart of this area, now occupied by New Oxford Street and Center Point, was something called the Rookery. The Rookery was a particularly dense warren of houses along George Street and Church Lane, the latter of which in 1852 was reckoned to contain over 1,100 lodgers in overpacked, squalid buildings with open sewers. The poverty worsened with the massive influx of poor Irish immigrants during the Great Famine of 1848, giving the area the name Little Ireland or the Holy Land. Government intervention beginning in the 1830s reduced the area of St. Giles through mass evictions, demolitions, and public works projects. New Oxford Street was built right next to the heart of the rookery in 1847, eliminating the worst part of the area, but many of the evicted inhabitants simply moved to neighboring streets, which remained stubbornly mired in poverty. So can you imagine, like, you have just suffered the worst famine in Irish history Mm -hmm. and you're forced to relocate to somewhere that has food what's nearby England yeah and you're like hey there's all these jobs in London I heard like industries booming there you show up you get packed in these slums you're like this sucks but like I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm gonna make life better for my children and then uh like the English are like hey you know what you're actually too dirty and like too poor and we don't like looking at you so we're just gonna um tear down the house you're living in right now and replace it with like a park or something and you can find somewhere else to live yeah that's really sucks yeah there's this show i mean some of you guys might have seen it um it's called like victorian farmhouse or something like that i don't i can't remember what it's called but basically uh they go through different time periods in england and different time periods in the uk and like scotland and like that part of the world and they like live as they did so for victorian farm they literally bought a victorian farm they dressed like victorians they didn't have like tv or phones or anything for like an entire year like they had to pickle their fucking plants like ahead of time so they wouldn't starve through the winter they had to like get like a traditional like sheeps that like herd that they would use during that time and like help keep the sheep like fucking fed and slaughter them and like give birth to their babies and do all that shit so they had one where they were in London as you're talking and it was almost like a game show like Big Brother but instead of just like being in modern times they were like stuck in this like fake like slum of London <laughs> and they they got assigned different jobs and the people who got like assigned to work in the coal mines like you're talking about it was just like completely horrible to where like the contestants like were just like fuck this I don't even like want to play this game yeah, anymore yeah like I don't even care if I win at this point yeah and it was just so funny because when they first get there and they're like getting transported into the world they pick out the people's clothes right so like one of them got to be like a nobleman he's like you know like owns a business so he got to get this like cool outfit and whatever and then like the people who had to work in the slums they literally just like picking rags up they're like dirty rags and they're like you can pick three of these rags essentially and so then like the people are just wearing rags and like a popper's cap and one of the things that I remember about them that was really fucked up is like everyone else got to 
use like a regular toilet and they had to go out of the house to use to like they didn't even have an outhouse they had like to just go on like the side of a building it was really fucked no up. i, I would to... leave immediately upon the first need of taking a shit i would be like i'm out i need to find it because it was like i feel like people of this podcast would really like enjoy this like wholesome stupid like historical humor but yeah i don't think it was meant to be funny but it just was wait is this on netflix or i watched it on youtube it was when i was pregnant okay. i got like stuck on this loop of like wanting to watch like this show like anything that was produced by these people they produced the show called victorian farm they also did edwardian farm and then youtube recommended like oh you like this weird thing like you're definitely gonna love this like uh reality tv show for people who get stuck as uh, being impoverished <laughs> london in the 1800s send, link it to me if you find it again yeah. send it to me and we'll link it in the show notes if we find it. i'm gonna find it because that sounds really delightful so as you can imagine so many people living on top of each other in the packed districts of london also led to an increase in death and disease. According to authors Beverly Cook and Alex Werner in a publication for the Museum of London, the extreme population density in areas like the East End made for unsanitary conditions and resulting epidemics of disease. The child mortality rate in the East End stood at 20%, while the estimated life expectancy of an East End laborer was only 19 years old. That is still a child. I know. You're like, oh, the child. Well, not back then. Back then, they're like, you're 12. Go scoop up horse dung and like crisscross, yeah. zigzag across the cobblestone pavement. And if you get hit by a horse, oh, well, like. Yeah, that's sad. And now in the area of Bethnal Green, one of London's poorest districts, the mortality rate was even higher, standing at one in 41 people in 1847. And overall life expectancy in the city stood at just 37 years in mid-century. So in London overall, the average life expectancy was just 30 seven years by the 1850s it's not worth it like you i know you guys want to be in foggy london town and be a little know. gentleman i'll take you to foggy london town because you are what my little gentleman yeah, yeah but it's just not worth it like if only there were some vigilante that could come out and scoop people up. Perhaps that's foreshadowing of something I'm going to talk right. about. But before I get to that, what were the main diseases floating around during this time, you might be asking? Tuberculosis. The most serious diseases were tuberculosis, cholera, rickets, scarlet fever, and typhoid. Smallpox also saw sporadic epidemics popping up throughout the 1800s. So, in summary, 19th century London was a really tough place to live if you weren't wealthy. Its booming industries attracted many immigrants and colonists in search of a better life, but as London's economy and infrastructure grew, so did its slums, pollution, and crime. An article for the historypress.co.uk highlights some of the most common crimes seen during this time period. Quote, crime was commonplace, from pickpocketing and housebreaking to violent affray and calculated murder. Vice was easily available from child prostitution to opium dens, and drunkenness was widespread. Quote, while women were most likely to be convicted of crimes such as prostitution and soliciting, both men and women were frequently convicted of being drunk and disorderly, along with other victimless crimes such as vagrancy and general drunkenness. Although domestic abuse was almost certainly a common crime in the Victorian era, it was rarely reported to authorities. For Victorians, reputation was everything, and having tales of what happened behind closed doors aired to the general public 
would almost certainly bring a family into disrepute, meaning many kept quiet and didn't mention it. While statistics put violent crime at only about 10% of all crime in 1800s London, these are the stories that often headline the most popular newspapers of the age. In general, Victorian Londoners could not get enough of true crime. What? In an article published to UKessays.com, this phenomenon is examined, stating, quote, Crime fiction is by no means a new idea but its widespread popularity as its own literary and cinematic genre is a relatively new development. Many sources and scholars identify the 19th century, more specifically 19th century England, as the birthplace of this beloved and increasingly popular genre. Like Sherlock Holmes mm -hmm. and uh, Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type stuff. Yeah, just like anything involving like murder and mayhem, mm -hmm. the Victorians were just fascinated by. And the Victorian age brought about a whole new take on crime, both true crime and fictional crime. It is thanks to the Victorians that we can enjoy this genre and everything it has come to be. Crime fiction flourished in the 19th century because of the Victorians, their environment, philosophies, culture, and shrewd publishers. To begin to unravel the mystery behind the sudden explosion of crime fiction, it is crucial to understand the Victorians and the environment they found themselves in. The British Industrial Rev Revolution was in full swing at the turn of the 19th century. Things were changing rapidly, and those who could adapt survived. The middle and lower class had some semblance of hope that they could change their lot in life, and the lucrative promise of urban living sent peasants and farmers to cities in the droves. However, metropolitan overpopulation proved to dash many of those dreams. The 1801 census recorded a population of about a million, which would grow by more than 700% by the end of the century. Technology was also evolving quickly, but not enough to keep up with the increasing concentration of people. Victorian London is infamous for its filth and depravity. Sewers, landfills, and graveyards were ill-equipped to handle the sheer volume of waste produced. Bodies were overflowing the burial sites, excrement filled the Thames, and rotting garbage littered the streets. In a time before environmental regulations, pollution from factories sat in the air like an ever-present fog cloud. Of course, there were simply not enough jobs to accommodate such a massive influx of people. Extreme poverty plagued the city, and the lower class was juxtaposed with the upper class. Crime was ever-present and getting worse. Civic unrest became such a problem in 1829 that London officials commissioned the creation of the first-ever centralized civil police force, the London Metropolitan Police Force. While met with contention at first, the police force quickly expanded and became quite popular. The public went so far as to choose favorites and condemn the police that they saw as fools. The police were mainly concerned with the prevention of crime and soon realized it was also necessary to find a way to track down a perpetrator once a crime had already been committed. A detective force was created in 1842 for this purpose and the public could not have been more invested with this concept. Many of today's most popular crime stories, both fictional and non-fictional, were born out of Victorian London. The most famous still today is probably the story of Jack the Ripper, an English serial killer who systematically murdered and mutilated prostitutes working in London's East End, never to be caught. But before Jack the Ripper would rear his ugly head in 1888, a different Jack would terrorize the streets of London, beginning in 1837 and, some say, 
still lurking today on Britain's darkened streets and rooftops. This Jack would come to be known as Spring-Heeled Jack. Sorry, I was just like fantasizing about everything you were talking about. Foggy London town and all of this like Yeah, let's do and, a recap. Before- and true crime. My, I, I just, the circuits, there were too many informations. Um, <gasps> let's do a recap yeah, of it. Yeah, recap. London, yeah, it's not a cool place to be if you're poor. You know, it really reminded me, I was getting flashbacks to the episode we just did about the catacombs where they were talking about like the overflowing cemeteries totally, and how like the population had just really boomed and the town was now like poorly planned because it was growing so quickly and there was like flooding happening and all of this fucked up shit. That's what it's reminding me of. Um, Spring-Heeled Jack, is this a character who jumps from rooftop to rooftop with his spring heels well i guess i can neither confirm nor deny as you will have to listen to my tale wow. to find out who this dreadful creature is i'm super excited i really wish that i had just like hired a voice actor to do an old-timey victorian like grandpa voice oh. like come gather around the yeah. fire go keep going just for our listeners in case you have adhd and you zoned out because i just threw a lot of information at you the main points that i'm trying to get across are victorian london a lot of good shit was happening and a lot of advancements were happening like technological Mm -hmm. transportation new ways of building things uh modern sewer systems would come out of that but it was at the expense of the poor on which it was built correct yeah yes absolutely so the rich were getting richer the poor were getting poorer it's also very reminiscent of that the episode i did on lake geneva and the beast of bray road where we were talking about what was going on in chicago mm-hmm. in the 1900s it's very similar yeah um some the people who were getting rich were living high on the hog and the people who were new to the country in search of a better life were really taking uh, a beating trying to claw their way up out of the slums yeah and there's a lot of disease a lot of filth so everyone's kind of looking for an outlet and that's one of the reasons why true crime and fictional crime became so popular during this era because it's kind of a way to separate this horror and this feeling of just griminess and sadness and darkness out it like gets it out of your system and puts it in, in the in a fictional scene where you can comfortably feel like everything is fucked up without it actually like being a mirror of your life totally and some of the best detective novels came out of victorian london and that was also born from what they were really witnessing in real life which is the first ever centralized police force. Like this was such a crazy mm-hmm. concept to people. Right. And at first they're they're pretty skeptical about it. And then they kind of warm up to the idea because they sort of see it as like a real life play playing out in yeah. front of them. They're like, oh, I like that detective. Like they picked favorites that mm-hmm. they would root for. Wow. So like in the town, if like you're getting a pint at the pub after a hard day's labor at the shipyard and you see like detective scrubbled up and you're like that's my favorite detective oh my god you're like Oi, cheering detective scrubbled dock it over here and come scared nice a cup of cold dark mead with me <laughs> and then and then detective scrubbled up arrests that man because that man's having a seizure and at the time they didn't realize that that was a medical issue and not caused by a demon <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, they'd be like cheering them on like, how many beggars have you arrested today, detective? Right. And then if there was a murder in the town, it was like they felt like they were playing a part in like right. helping solve it because they're like cheering on the detective like, oh, you got to talk to this guy. You yeah. got to go do this. Like this is a whole brand new concept. Prior to Victorian era London, it was sort of like, I mean, people obviously like policed themselves, but this was like the first time that they really felt like they were coming up with something together. That's really interesting to me. It's kind of like a politician, but they're more active, right? So yeah. it's like, oh yeah, like I, I'm a Victorian London man who's drank like five pints of whiskey. And now I would like to go see that Bobby smash someone over the head with a baton. Yes. So I am going to Straight help up. make that happen by uh, gathering evidence for him and we're going to fucking find this murderer together. Absolutely. And a little bit later in the story, I'm going to talk to you about the most famous detective to come out of this time period. But these detectives that are like famous they're celebrities exactly like Sherlock Holmes is fictional right Mm -hmm. but like there were detectives that were super fucking famous like if you solved a crime that everybody was invested in yeah you were like the talk of the town you were the king of the police like in that moment until somebody else solved. it's like a Marvel superhero movie where like the chief of police is taking down the bad guy with the help of the vigilantes exactly yeah and I think this was still a time period where there was like a lot of optimism and like I mean I don't want to say that there was no corruption because obviously there was but like it was just such a new concept that people were really rooting for everyone that's exciting yes it's very exciting now we move on to part two the tale of spring-heeled jack high upon the rooftops of Britain's crowded brick and stone buildings an unknown entity lurked in the darkness of night looking for his next victim Dressed in a flowing cape with metal claws, a long pointed chin, and glowing red eyes, the entity could often be seen by the townsfolk, bounding with ease over nine-foot walls and across fifteen-foot gaps between roofs. Some claimed to hear his eerie, echoing laughter ringing throughout the streets while others reported that he glowed with an intense blue flame about his head. While his appearance varied wildly in victim descriptions, his uncanny talent for jumping did not. Due to his seemingly inhuman ability to leap over and across various town structures, from gates to fences to walls and even horse-drawn carriages to gardens, rooftops, and even people, this terrifying entity would come to be known as Spring-Heeled Jack. The story of Spring-Heeled Jack is complicated and convoluted, with many authors and historians disagreeing on when exactly his tirade on British working-class women began, but most articles on the subject seem to agree that his first sighting can be traced to sometime in 1837. Some argue that the first sighting was in September, while others say October or December, but the year is always the same, 1837. I will read to you all of these sightings and allow you, the listener, our haunties, to decide what is fact and what is fiction. In the village of Barnes, located just southwest of London in early September of 1837, stories began circulating about a terrifying vision that had appeared one night in the streets. This entity was described as some sort of ghost, imp, or devil that had shape-shifted into a large white bull 
that charged at and attacked several different people before seemingly disappearing into thin air. News of this strange encounter soon spread like wildfire to nearby villages, with others reporting similar sightings. In some of these incidents, the shape-shifting demon appeared in the form of a white bull, but in others it appeared as a bear, a man, a ghost, or even the devil himself. Oh, he's a bear also? He's just a shape-shifting it's demon. Different. It's Yeah, it's different things to different people. Exactly, seeing, yeah. But they all agree that they think this is the same entity. And we'll talk about some of the characteristics they had in common. But basically, this is like a shape-shifting demon that takes on the countenance of things that would have been scary at the time in London. Like, they're living in a busy city center. They're not going to see a white bull that's like just running full speed at them with its horns and then all of a sudden it reaches them and just evaporates into thin air. God, that's fucking terrifying. That's fucking so scary. <laughs> yeah, that would be terrifying at any time, yes, period. Or a, or a bear. They yeah. just see a fucking bear in the middle of their shit-covered, urine-soaked yeah. streets and it's like ambling towards them and then as it gets closer, it just like jumps fucking 15 feet into the air and wow. just disappears. Wow. Yeah, that is terrifying. That's terrifying. And then other people describe it as like, no, it it was like the form of a man, but you could tell it wasn't quite a man. Like maybe it was a demon or a ghost or some sort of uh, like cryptid or entity or monster. And then other people were like, straight up, that is the devil. Like that, <laughs> like there is no other entity that has that power. Right. Like it is 100% the devil himself. You know what's crazy to me is you said this was 1836, right? Yeah. So 1837. 1837. We, when we did the story on the Donner Party, that was from 1846. So that's 10, so that's 10 years after this. And those people were fucking in covered wagons, covered in dust. Like, you know, they had to hunt for their food. They didn't have running water. Meanwhile, 10 years before, over here in London, you have people, like, working in the coal factories. And they have, like, horse-drawn carriages in the streets. And there's, you know what I mean? It yeah. Just, it's crazy to me now. It's really putting in perspective the difference between, like, what it was like to go over to the New World, quote-unquote, uh, versus like being in the more civilized, quote unquote, uh, Europe. Yeah, like the the more tamed uh, lands of yeah lo- foggy London town. Yeah. Whereas yeah, the U.S. was still expanding. Right. Like if you're going to the U.S. at this time, you might actually run into a bear or a bull that yeah. gores you. Whereas in London, they're like, I really fucking don't want to see that shit so much that I'm like. Uh, being chased and haunted by a ghost who is a bear and a bull, you know? Exactly, yeah. If you were on the Oregon Trail and you saw a bull, like a white bull running towards you that's like fucking huge, you'd be like, thank God, because my whole family is starving. I have two bullets left in my rifle. Let's fucking do this. Let's like locked this and bitch. loaded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then in foggy London town, you're like, this is the worst thing that could ever happen to me. Right, yeah. It's like I had one piece of bread and a <laughs> spoonful of porridge. I'm starving, but I... I don't have the strength to fight this bull right now. I have shit in my pants more times than I can count. And no one's even noticed because of how fucking disgusting our town is. (laughs) And now there's a bear coming for my face. Okay, so while the form was different each time, everyone who saw it reported that this entity was one being 
turning into many different things rather than individual separate phenomena. No police reports were filed in any of these incidents reported in September of 1837, but by October, that would change. On October 11th, 1837, a barmaid named Polly Adams was walking home from the pub where she worked to her residence in the town of Blackheath. On her walk home, Miss Polly reported being attacked by a, quote, devil-like gentleman at Blackheath Fair who tore off her blouse and scratched her stomach with his claws before escaping by leaping over a fence. Wow. She reported that the entity breathed blue and white flames into her face and that he had red glowing eyes. You're going to have to keep going because I need to know what happens. That's the only information we have from Polly Adams. Are these people just like fucking with these detectives? And they're just like, oh, Detective Scribbleboo. Uh, I saw a man and he scratched my stomach and he breathed blue and uh, white flames into my face and he had red eyes. And then also my friend saw a bear jump 15 feet in the air and disappear. And then there was also a bull that disappeared as it was running uh, at me full force into a wall. Like, please discover and figure out this case. You know, interestingly, all of the cases that were reported to police had physical evidence left at the scene of the crime. So in the case of Polly... It's like her blouse. Her blouse is torn. She's got scratches all over her. She's sobbing. She's like so relieved that she got away from this entity. But the weird thing about this dude is that it doesn't even seem like he really has an objective, right? He just like, terrorizes. Yeah, he's just terrorizing and then just jumps away like he's on a pogo stick over a, a 10-foot wall. Mm. The next person thought to have had an unfortunate brush with Spring-Heeled Jack was a domestic servant named Mary Stevens. Sometime shortly after Polly's encounter in October of 1837, Mary was walking across Clapham Common, when, according to author J.S. Mackley, she was set upon by a figure who leapt out of an alleyway and proceeded to rip at her clothes and touch her body with his cold claws. Ew. When Stephen screamed, several residents came to her aid, but the attacker was nowhere to be found. On the following day, a figure leapt in front of a carriage, causing the driver to lose control and crash. Witnesses describe how the assailant escaped by jumping over a nine-foot wall, surrounded by echoing, maniacal laughter. Shortly after this incident, Jack left footprints three inches deep in the ground near Clapham Church when he assaulted a different woman. These impressions appeared to show a spring-like coiled mechanism built into the soles of his shoes, which gave him his ability to jump. Okay, now I'm thinking that this is someone who's just, like, fucking with all of these people, which is even more scary. You'd have to be the most unhinged mad scientist inventor. And that's terrifying. To pull that off. But also, the idea of having just, like, total control over, like, coiled springs on the bottom of your shoes that can shoot you nine feet into the air seems really bizarre. Like, that doesn't jive with, like, what we know about physics. Right. So... That's, like, on Inspector Gadget shit. Absolutely. So that kind of makes you think, is it a demon that just, like, its feet look like it has springs Or is it now someone who's heard of, like, oh, there is a spring-heeled jack here. They're trying to fuck with people. 
And so, like, some of yeah. these sightings are real, but some of them are just, you know, kids pretending. Totally. Or is it even possible that, like, somebody just, like, MacGyvered some shoes with some springs on them and they were like, oh, I know in this area there was an attack last night. Let me go out there with these shoes and, like, make imprints in the ground. Oh, yeah, I mean, it could who's be. to say? While most attacks were reported by women, there were a few men who also reported seeing Jack. Author J.S. Mackley goes on to write about an incident that occurred in December of 1837 when a businessman reported having encountered a, quote, leaping man on Barnes Common. Well, I'm sorry. I'm laughing because, like, the idea that you're just walking home from work in these, like, foggy-ass, polluted streets you can barely see it's super dark and then these gas lamps are kind of lighting your way but not really and you're just like i hope i don't get murdered tonight or pickpocketed and then all of a sudden you just see like a fucking man with a pointy chin and red glowing eyes just like jumping in front of you across the street is so insane and absurd like it's yeah. not even funny at that point you're no. just like what the fuck is going on yeah I sh fight or flight right yeah there's like a man jumping from the street to the rooftop of a building while he like creepily laughs your brain needs a moment to process that to like even decide what to do if I saw that I might just convince myself that I didn't see it Right, just you know keep what I walking. Mean? Yeah. Well, I look, I know this is a controversial statement, and I'm going to say it because of that reason. I lived in downtown Los Angeles for a very long time, okay? And I the, the amount of things that I saw that would have been someone's story of the year that I just saw, like, on my way walking home or, like, while walking my dog or, like, on my way to work uh, were astronomical. Yeah. And it got to the point where you just kind of learned, okay, like that is a haunted demonic entity. <laughs> and as long as it doesn't notice me, then like I I will be okay. Right. right. Like, so you yeah. have to kind of get on the same level. So if I saw someone like trying to burn up trash cans and like kicking and screaming and like talking about how 9-11 was an inside job, I would just walk on as if I already knew that information and like not look at them, not be surprised by it. So that way they're like, oh, you know, I don't need to tell this person <laughs> she already about knows. this. Exactly. This is not new to her. She is not shocked by this revelation. Right. She's she, one of me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm playing my tambourine while naked in mm -hmm. the middle of the street. Uh, yeah. And she's not faced. So right. guess what? She's safe. Right. Exactly. Yeah. While the businessman. So back back to the businessman. So there's this businessman walking down the street. It's dark. It's late at night. And he suddenly sees a man leap out of the shadows into the middle of the street. While the businessman initially expressed interest in having the police investigate this matter, he eventually retracted his statements when approached by journalists who were hounding him for quotes, which would then lead some to believe that he had lied about the story. The Morning Herald published the following statement about the alleged sighting on January 10th, 1838. Quote, the businessman was directed to many persons who were named as having been injured by this alleged ghost, but on his speaking to them, they immediately denied all knowledge of it, but directed him to other persons whom they had heard had been ill-treated, but with them he met with no better success, and the police declared that, although they have made every inquiry into the matter, they cannot find one individual hardy enough to assert a personal knowledge on the subject. So that's like old-timey town speak for... The police went and talked to people who said that they had seen this on that same night and nobody wanted to make a formal statement. 
Right, because they're, it's kind of like the people don't want to talk about how they've been abducted by an alien because people might There's think they're crazy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I think it's interesting that the women were willing to go forward with their statements, but this guy, like, gets spooked at the last minute. And I wonder if he was, like, this is a guy that only attacks women. Like, I'm, like, a pussy if I try to, like, report this. Oh, right. Like, it was an internalized misogyny. Yeah, well, Victorian London. Yeah. The next sighting came just before New Year's Eve of 1837, when residents of the neighborhood of Lewisham described a figure disguised in a bear skin and wearing spring shoes who jumps to and fro before foot passengers as part of a wager to appear as these freaks in nine different parishes, according to the Northampton Mercury, published December 30th, 1837. The figure in this article was given the name Steel Jack, presumably from earlier sightings where people had reported seeing Spring-Heeled Jack wearing a suit of armor. <laughs> then on Jan... Hold on. Gets- okay, I'm just going to call it out. This is like sounding like local crackhead behavior to me now. At first I was thinking this was a ghost, but these particular instances you're telling me about now have a person who is uh, enjoying whatever the crack was at that time all over it. But I think we have to keep in mind how many of these were copycat crimes, right? Like how many people are so fucking bored? There's no TV. Everything smells. Everything's shitty. Right. And you're like, oh, hey, there's this crazy man named Springheel Jack. And he's not doing anything super illegal. You know, he's weird for sure. It's like, but like he's scaring not people's not illegal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're probably like, ooh, it'll be funny. Like, I dare you to dress up as Springheel Jack tonight and like jump around. Right. The- it's like kids smashing pumpkins in the streets or like yes. prank calling or t- like TPing, except this has even less damage. Exactly. Or on the believer side what if all of these sightings are real and this imp as it was described as is just morphing into different things that it thinks is going to be better received by people so it's like all right they didn't like my white buffalo or white bull they didn't like my bear skin uh they didn't like when i had a pointy chin and red eyes and spit fire at women so now i'm gonna be like a knight in shining armor but for some reason i can't stop jumping really high There's options here, is all I'm saying. On January 13th, 1838, an article carried the headline, Spring Jack, and it was very soon afterwards, on the 22nd of February, that the press gave him a name to their fears, Spring-Heeled Jack. Now equipped with a catchy name, word of Spring-Heeled Jack spread even wider throughout Britain. The topic of this shape-shifting demon attacking women in the night was so pervasive that eventually the Lord Mayor of London himself, Sir John Cohen, was forced to hold something of a press conference on the matter. This mayoral speech was then written about in several newspapers. On January 9th, 1838, one such article was published to one of London's most popular newspapers, The Morning Chronicle. The article reads as follows, quote, The Lord Mayor said, that he had received a letter upon a subject the odd nature of which had induced him to withhold it from the public for some days, in the expectation that some statement might be made through a source of indisputable authority relative to the matter of which it treated. The following is the letter. To the Right Honorable the Lord Mayor, My Lord, the writer presumes that your lordship will kindly overlook the liberty he has taken in addressing a few lines on a subject which, within the last few weeks has caused much alarming sensation in the neighboring villages within three and four miles of London. 
it appears that some individuals of, as the writer believes, the higher ranks of life, have laid a wager with a mischievous and foolhardy companion that he dost not take upon himself the task of visiting many of the villagers near London in the three different disguises of a ghost, a bear, and a devil, and moreover that he will not dare to enter gentlemen's gardens for the purpose of alarming the inmates of the house. The wager has, however, been accepted, and the unmanly villain has succeeded in depriving seven ladies of their senses. At one house he rang the bell, and on the servant coming to open the door, this worse than brute stood in a no less dreadful figure than a spectre, clad most perfectly. The consequence was that the poor girl immediately swooned, and has never from that moment been in her senses. But on seeing any man screams out most violently, take him away. There are two ladies which your lordship will regret to hear, who have husbands and children, and who are not expected to recover, but likely to become burdens upon their families. For fear that your lordship might imagine that the writer exaggerates, he will refrain from mentioning other cases, if anything, more melancholy than those he has already related. The affair has now been going on for some time, and, strange to say, the papers are still silent on the subject. The writer is very unwilling to be unjust toward any man, but he has reason to believe that they have the whole history at their fingers' ends, but through interested motives are induced to remain silent. It is, however, high time that such a detestable nuisance should be put to a stop, and the writer feels assured that your lordship, as the chief magistrate of London, will take great pleasure in exerting your power to bring the villain to justice. Hoping your lordship will pardon the liberty I have taken in writing, I remain your lordship's most humble servant, a resident of Peckham. The Lord Mayor, on reading this account, observed, In his opinion, it was not calculated for the meridian of London, but if any trick had been practiced by fools, he had no doubt that the vigilance of the police might be depended upon to prevent annoyance. It appeared to him that the letter, which was written in a very beautiful hand, was the production of a lady who might have been terrified by some bugaboo into this mode of obtaining retribution at the hands of the Lord Mayor. But as the terrible vision had not entered the city, he could not take cognizance of its inequities. A gentleman stated to his lordship that the servant girls about Kensington and Hammersmith and Ealing told dreadful stories of the ghost or devil, who on one occasion was said to have beaten a blacksmith and torn his flesh with iron claws. Damn, beating a blacksmith is like, you gotta be fucking serious. That's what I'm saying, is this person or entity like is either otherworldly or just like gives absolutely no fucks. And tore his flesh with iron claws and in others to tear the clothes from the backs of females. Not one of the injured people had been known to tell the story, Perhaps they did not even live to tell it. The Lord Mayor believed that one of the seven ladies who had lost their seven senses was his correspondent. He hoped she would do him the favor of a call, and he would have the opportunity of getting from her such a description of the demon as would enable him to catch him in spite of the paid press and police. Okay, so this article is super old-timey because it comes from uh, 1838, so I'm going to translate it into modern-day English. Basically, the Mayor of London gets this letter in the mail from this assume he assumes a lady and the lady's like look there's this rumor running around town that some like bored aristocrats 
came up with a bet and they said, hey, uh, the guy that lost the bet, we want you to, to like go fuck with these poor to people. To go fuck with these poor people. You need to dress up as three different things. You need to dress up as a demon, a ghost, a bear, a, a bull, what I guess four different things. And we like want you to do it in different areas, whatever, whatever. And this lady is saying that this guy is not just scaring people, but there's also reports around town that like a lady passed out. And when she came to, she had like such bad PTSD that she now can't be around men. Um, another person was like- Like, it's not funny. Basically. No, it's not funny. Yeah. The blacksmith was like fucked up. Like he had, like his flesh was torn from him. Um, and then the lady even goes on to say like, there, we know that there's someone that's already that's like died from this like somebody got whether that's from fright or like from actually being murdered like somebody died from this so I need you to look into it and then the Lord Mayor is kind of a dick about it like he calls this press conference and has these journalists show up oh because the lady's also saying like and the fact that like there aren't that many articles about this like makes me think there's a cover-up like because it's an aristocrat Maybe it's someone from the government, or maybe it's someone from the police force. Or maybe it's you. Maybe, or maybe this is it's me you, riding, Lord Mayor. Yeah, to tell you that I know this is you and your drunk friends. Exactly. So the Lord Mayor's like, <laughs> harumph, and like has this little press conference in front of journalists, and he's like, well, if only the lady would come forward, perhaps I could investigate. But since the reports of this demon are from outside of my jurisdiction, there's nothing I can do. And he kind of like is poking fun at her and being like, oh, haha, it's just like a crazy lady experiencing hysteria. Yeah. He's, min he's minimizing this. Like he thinks it's like kind of funny and she's coming to him like, look, this is my last option because this is not funny and I know how like insane this sounds, but like this is my reality about it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. A month after the mayor's speech, another jack attack took place. On February 22nd, 1838, a Miss Jane Alsop would have a terrifying brush with spring-heeled Jack. Her encounter with the strange being was documented in local London newspaper, The Times, that same month, which published the following words. At about a quarter to nine on the preceding night, Miss Alsop heard a violent ringing at the gate in front of the house, and upon going to the door to see what was the matter, she saw a man standing outside of whom she inquired what was the matter and requested that he would not ring so loudly. The person instantly replied that he was a policeman and said, For heaven's sake, woman, bring me a light, for we have caught spring-heeled Jack out here on the lane. She returned into the house and brought a candle and handed it to the person who appeared enveloped in a large cloak and whom she at first really did believe to be a policeman. The instant that she handed him the candle, however, he threw off his outer garment, and applying the lighted candle near his breast, presented a most hideous and frightful appearance, and vomited forth a quantity of blue and white flame from his mouth, and his eyes resembled red balls of fire. From her hasty glance, which her fright enabled her to get of this person, she observed that he wore a large helmet, and his dress, which appeared to fit him very tight, seemed to her to resemble white oilskin. Without saying a word, he darted at her, and catching her partly by her dress in the back part of her neck, placed her head under one of his arms, and commenced tearing her gown with his claws, which she was certain were made of some metallic substance. She screamed out as loud as she could for assistance, and by considerable exertion got away from him and ran toward the house to get inside. 
Her assailant, however, followed her and caught her on the steps leading to the door where he again used considerable violence, tore her neck and arms with his claws, as well as tore a quantity of hair from her head. But she was at length rescued from his grasp by one of her sisters. Miss Alsop added that she had suffered considerably all night from the shock she had sustained and was then in extreme pain, both from the injury done to her arm and the wounds and scratches inflicted by the miscreant on her shoulders and neck with his claws or hands. This story was fully confirmed by Mr. Alsop, and his other daughter said, quote, that the fellow kept knocking and ringing at the gate after she had dragged her sister away from him, but scampered off when she shouted from an upper window for a policeman. I'm honestly just shocked because like while you're while you're just telling this to me, I'm taking this in. I'm like, okay, this is a person wearing an oil skin. He literally puts someone's head under his arm like he's going to give him a noogie and then he's like ripping up their clothes and then just fucking like bounds off into the distance and breathes fire on her face and has glowing red eyes and is wearing a weird helmet. Yeah. Like it's just so bizarre. I just I don't know. I I just don't know. The thing that's coming to my mind is that last night I watched probably the stupidest show I've ever seen. It was uh, it was called Craft Punk, and it was Eric Andre like dressed as like a Daft Punk, but instead of Daft Punk, it's like macaroni and cheese. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, Craft Mac and Cheese. Yeah, and it was just like he's wearing like this Daft Punk helmet, like it's like a motorcycle helmet, but it's orange and it's covered in macaroni and cheese. And then he has like a an orange suit on with like lycra pants and stuff, and he just looks like a fucking asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes around Washington D.C. and he's like asking people these stupid questions. And it's Eric Andre, so he's crazy. And at one point he gets like I don't even remember who they were. It was like three different people at this round table, and it was so cringe that I was like dying inside. And one of them was that girl, her Rachel something, who identifies as black. Oh, and Rachel like, Dolezal. Yeah. So he had her on the show and then they're like having like a heated political debate, like the Rachel and these other two people. And while this is all happening, two nurses come out of nowhere and they set up um, an operating table thing. Like they put up like, sh like, uh, what are these things called? Partition. Yeah, they put up two partitions, so there's just a crack you can see through it. And Eric Andre, who's craft uh, punk, he's like, I have to drain my craft, or I have to drain my cheese. One moment, I have to drain my macaronis. And he goes behind there, he takes off his helmet, and through the crack you can just see like the back of someone's skull that's like encrusted with bloody macaronis, and it like is the most ugly, disgusting. <laughs> clearly, like uh, someone spent a lot of time like with some makeup and some fucked up shit to make this look fucked up, and he's like cheese is like oozing out of it and there's like these nurses who are like draining it and the guy that's like one of the guys that was just in this like heated political debate is like just looking over through that crack watching this happening and and then it just like the scene cuts right like it's it's over like craft the guy comes back and he's like hey sorry about that and they're just like right back to having the heated discussion and nobody even like mentions it because they're just like that like <laughs> that was so weird that like you can't acknowledge it Exactly. And it was just like basically in their mind, they're like, we're going to table that and yeah. we're going to continue this uh, discussion that we're having because we we know how to have the discussion we're having, but we don't know how to have that discussion. Like, what is that? Is that a problem? Yeah. Is that disrespectful? Is that funny? Is that weird? Is that? And that's kind of how I feel with this thing is it's just like, how do you even react? Yeah, that's the thing. You, It's so absurd. It's absurd. And it's terrifying in its absurdity because it makes no sense and it's just like coming at you and like 
you don't know what it's going to do to you. Like, it's so absurd that you're like, is it going to eat me? Am I going to disappear? Is it going to murder me? Like, is it of flesh and blood? Is it going to whisk me away to the underworld? Like, it's so absurd that you just don't even know and if what it's, it's physically, It's physically harming people. Like, if it can physically cut you, that's also kind of scary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In a 60-plus page report published by author Mike Dash to his website, MikeDash.com, Dash elaborates more on this attack on Miss Alsop, writing, quote, Jane's statement was supported by those of her sisters. The elder of the two, who was evidently married since she gave her name as Mrs. Harrison, told the court that her sister's dress was nearly torn off of her. Both of her combs dragged out of her head, as well as a quantity of hair torn away, while Jane's father added one significant detail. Mr. Alsop also said it was perfectly clear that there was more than one ruffian connected with the outrage, as the fellow who committed the violence did not return for his cloak, but scampered across the fields, so that there must have been some other person with him who had picked up the cloak because it was not there in the morning. Or he could have just come back. Or also maybe a random beggar walking down the street saw a perfectly good cloak and was like, it's fucking freezing Mm -hmm. and I'm covered in shit. I'm yeah. taking this cloak. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. I feel like in a, if you leave a cloak, like, yeah. someone's going to take it. Yeah. Like, if I'm freezing in Lake Tahoe and I am leave wearing a, a North, tank top yeah. and yeah. I see a North Face jacket sitting on someone's, not even on someone's stoop, like, in the middle of the road. Because right. that's what happened is he, like, leaps away yeah. like a fucking weirdo and his cape just, like, falls off of him and drapes into the cobblestone shit-covered ground. Right. You're going to be like, clearly this is a forgotten item. If I don't take it, someone else is. So why not? And this why is a not up. me. Yeah. Yes, and then your musical number starts, and it's like, why not I? I have the cloak. My new life will begin. Going to come up on something better today. Sunshine tomorrow. Shit today. But I've got a cloak, and now, hey, hey, hey. It's midday. And then the sun breaks through the clouds. The sun will come And he gets promoted. Tomorrow. I'll wear this cloak, and everything will be different now i've been promoted i can shovel shit in the daytime they promoted me from the night shift because of my clothes he got promoted he got promoted yeah, all the townsfolk <laughs> pop out of the chimney yeah and they're tap dancing with yes. their like arms out and then someone has a cane and a top hat <laughs> beautiful dash continues writing There appear to have been two investigations of the Alsop assault. The first was conducted independently by the recently established Metropolitan Police. The second was in the charge of James Lee, a former member of the Bow Street Patrol employed directly by Lambeth Street Police Force to look into cases that came upon the court. Lee, who still enjoys, among authorities on police history, the reputation of having been the best detective in Victorian London, had more than a decade's experience of tackling crime in the dist- in the district. Now, let me tell you about this bitch James Lee because this motherfucker is akin to Liam Neeson. Oh. Let me show you. Oh, so he's got like a little hat, a cap on and these like little spectacle. He just yeah, he just like looks like he's not fucking around. He looks like a main character. Yeah. Of a Victorian novel Absolutely. about true crime. Absolutely. <laughs> and James Lee was indeed an extremely famous Victorian detective who was very very famous in Britain at the time and he had just solved 
one of the biggest, most widely publicized murders of the era in 1827, when he personally fucking Liam Neesoned the shit out of this case, tracked down, personally tracked down and arrested, personally, the man who murdered a young woman named Maria Martin. Like he, one guy. Yeah, how did he know? Through sheer gumption and oh, wow. clues. Yeah, so he's like a dog, the bounty hunter. Yes. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Dog the Bounty Hunter meets Sherlock Holmes. Wow. Meets Sherlock Holmes. And he just found this lady's boyfriend. So it's like a sad story. This lady, Maria Martin, she's super young. She's living with her parents. She's dating this dude. Her parents are like, you're too young to get married. Stay at home. It, does, it doesn't specify how old she was, but since the average lifespan was like 19 to 37 years old, I'm assuming she's like a teenager and probably this guy's older. And her family's like, no, 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 don't, don't like, you can't marry him. We don't give you our blessing. You need to stay home with us. And so she meets up with him and they're planning on eloping. And then he just ends up fucking murdering her. Fuck that guy. Fuck that guy for sure. But hooray to James Lee because he solved this murder. And at the time, like we just discussed, this was like a super novel concept that like people could solve murders. So according to Dash, James Lee would make the following observation about the crime. He stated that from what they had learned, he had no doubt that the person by whom the outrage had been committed had been in the neighborhood for nearly a month past frightening men as well as women, and had, on one occasion, narrowly escaped apprehension. A person answering precisely his size and figure had been frequently observed walking about the lanes and lonely places, enveloped in a large Spanish cloak. Yeah, that's sketch. That's super... That's like fucking Dracula. Yeah, that's not cool. Do not be wandering around lonely places in a large cloak. In a large Spanish cloak, when, like and imagine how like crazy you would look because all of these people as we've just discussed are really fucking dirty and living in slums and then there's just like a long thin skinny guy with a pointy chin in a long spanish cloak that's just like ah like waving his cloak around as he mm-hmm. walks uh down the street yeah no no And this figure was sometimes in the habit of carrying a small lantern about with him, despite the fact that gas lamps were on nearly every street corner. So it was just like part of his outfit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in any other circumstance, I'd be like, fuck yeah. Like, that's really fashionable. Like, it's like clearly an accessory. It's like a purse, right? Yeah. This person is in costume. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or is this the ghost of someone who died before there were gas lamps on the street and so he's accustomed to carrying around his little lantern at night? Oh, I didn't even think of that. On one occasion, the figure partially exhibited his masquerade in Beaufair Fields and was closely pursued by a number of men in the employment of Mr. Giles, a coachmaster at Bow. But by the most extraordinary agility and apparently a thorough knowledge of the locality of the place, he got clear off. The officer added he was perfectly satisfied of the truth of the statement of Miss Alsop as to the violence inflicted upon her by the person she described. Indeed, the whole family, all of whom had seen him, agreed precisely in this description, but he differed in opinion with Mr. Alsop that there was more than one person connected in the outrage. The situation of Mr. Alsop's house being at a considerable distance from any other, and in a very lonely spot, afforded ample opportunity for the ghost, as he was called, to play off his pranks with with impunity. But besides this, it was quite evident that the family were not strangers to him, as he was well acquainted with the name of Mr. Alsop. 
After the outrage was committed, it appeared, the family threw up their windows and called out loudly for the police and assistance. And their cries being heard at the John Bull public house some distance off caused three persons to set out from thence in the direction of Mr. Alsop's, and on their way thither, they met a tall person wrapped up in a large cloak who said as they came up that a policeman was wanted at Mr. Alsop's and they took no further notice of him. This person, he felt convinced, was none other than the perpetrator of the outrage himself. So this fucking badass Sherlock Holmes guy, I really like him because unlike the mayor who's like, these ladies have hysteria and they're just making shit up. He's like, I believe Jane's story. Yeah. I'm getting involved. I believe her. There's witness accounts. Mm -hmm. um, people like you can see the injuries. She's clearly very affected by what happened to her. And he, he took this he took this case seriously. Yes, absolutely yeah. took it seriously. Absolutely believes her. Now he thinks it's like a flesh and blood person. Right. He thinks that this is just a dick. Yes. And the reason why he thinks that is because he finds some witnesses who like ran from the pub up to the house when they heard Jane's father screaming for help. And they come upon this guy wrapped in a weird fucking cloak. And, yeah. And they're like, hey, man, what's going on down there? And the guy's like, oh, uh, Mr. Alsop needs help. Uh, he's asking for the police. I think something's happened at their house. And they're like, oh, shit. So they run past this weird fucking dude. Yeah. To go help Mr. Alsop. And then later they're like, wait a minute. That was probably... Springheeled Jack. Mm -hmm. Five days after Jane Alsop was attacked, Springheeled Jack would strike again, this time presenting himself to a young boy. In this incident, a young servant boy living at 2 Turner Street heard a rap at the door late at night. Opening the heavy door and peeking around the corner, the boy came face to face with a most hideous appearance. Springheeled Jack was there at the door. Throwing down his heavy cloak with an ominous flourish, the shocked boy let out an ear-piercing, terrified scream before Springheeled Jack bounded away down the street. According to the blog Isle of Dog's Life, a celebration of life past and present on this small part of London's East End, a few days after the servant boy's encounter, Springheeled Jack made an appearance in the town of Limehouse. A local newspaper reported that Jack had made himself known to a woman named Lucy Scales. The article goes on to say the following, quote, The ghost, alias Springheeled Jack, added again. At Lambeth Street office, Mr. Scales, a respectable butcher residing in Narrow Street Limehouse, accompanied by his sister, a young woman 18 years of age, made the following statement relative to the further gambles of Springheeled Jack. Miss Scales stated that on the evening of Wednesday last, at about half past eight o'clock, as she and her sister were returning from the house of their brother, and while passing along Green Dragon Alley, they observed some person standing in an angle in the passage. She was in advance of her sister at the time, and just as she came up to the person, who was enveloped in a large cloak, he spurted a quantity of blue flames right in her face, which deprived her of her sight and so alarmed her that she instantly dropped to the ground and was seized with violent fits, which continued for several hours. Oh no. Mr. Scales said that on the evening in question, in a few minutes after his sisters had left the house, he heard the loud screams of one of them, and upon running up Green Dragon Alley, he found his sister Lucy, who had just given her statement, on the ground in a fit, and his other sister endeavoring to hold and support her. 
She was removed home, and he then learned from his other sister what had happened. She described the person to be of tall, thin, and gentlemanly appearance, enveloped in a large dark cloak, and carried in front of his person a small lamp, or bullseye, similar to those in possession of the police. The individual did not utter a word, nor did he attempt to lay hands on them, but walked away in an instant after vomiting blue flames in her face. Every effort was subsequently made by the police to discover the author of these and similar outrages, and several persons were taken up and underwent lengthy examinations, but were finally set at liberty, nothing being elicited to fix the offense upon them. A few days after this event, a coachman was allegedly driving his carriage and horses late at night when a frightful apparition appeared in the streets beside him, dressed in metal armor and shooting blue flames from his mouth. Sounds like the same dude. So, I mean, it's, how many of their of those can there be? That's the thing. I mean, it's let's say there's one guy who's figured out how to shoot blue flames from his mouth with like a knight in shining armor outfit on and pogo stick over objects in the road. What are the odds that there would be like multiple? I'm no mathematician, but it's probably seems, few. Seems unlikely. The entity reportedly leapt over the nine-foot carriage with great ease before disappearing into a darkened alley. Upon seeing the frightful specter, the coachman's horses became so spooked that they bolted wildly down the street until the coachman crashed into a wall, suffering great bodily injury. Other witnesses corroborated the coachman's story, further telling police that they too saw the demonic entity and reported that he had let out an evil giggle while he leapt over the coach. Yeah, I don't like that. This man is off his rocker. What's an evil giggle? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. I think so. I'm going to like insert, if I can find a cool evil giggle sound effect online, I'm going to insert it here. Evil giggle free, no royalty, copyright free. That's literally, that's exactly what I search. Yeah, no, that's me too. I'm like babbling brook free, no no copyright, download free. No credit needed. No, yeah, royalty free. Then, just as suddenly as he had appeared, Spring-Heeled Jack seemingly vanished from the Victorian streets of Great Britain, with no more sightings being reported after this last one, until... 34 years later, when, on November 6, 1872, a man named G.H.R. Davidson wrote a letter to the editor of the Camberwell and Peckham Times about an encounter he had with a possible ghost or demon that he thought might be Spring-Heeled Jack. Quote, While returning from a friend's house at Brixton Hill last evening, I was accosted by that malapropre figure, the ghost. I had just arrived at the point in Hearn Hill Road where the footpath runs from the side of St. Paul's into Half Moon Lane when the figure came forth from beside the stile. I confess I was momentarily frightened, but speedily recovered my presence of mind, was on the point of making an onslaught with my umbrella when the object turned sharp round and clearing the low railings at a bound made off across the country. Being now over 40, it was useless thinking of pursuit, but I, however, satisfied myself that he is clad in a black suit, which by some means he transposes into white when needful. He also has spring-heeled or India rubber-soled boots, for no man living could leap so lightly, and, I might say, fly across the ground in the manner he did so last night. So this dude is kind of a baller. He's 40. He's uh, walking around the streets at night with his umbrella, 
and this dude just pops out of nowhere dressed all in black but then the black transforms itself into white at some point and the 40 year old man which that's old for this time we've just discussed average age was like 37 right yeah like before death and he's like oh, i'm so fucking old and i'm so tired and my lung i have the black lung from working in a coal mine but you know i'll make a stab at this guy and so as he tries to stab the guy with his umbrella the dude just like springs up into the air and like bounds away across like the grass and it just disappears into the night. I want some of those shoes. Yeah. That is like, okay, remember how Nike used to make those shock shoes that like had like four little springs in yes. the back? When that, I wanted those shoes to be like the spring-heeled jack. And so I was so disappointed when I bought those shoes. And they didn't make And them. it was just a shoe. I, I don't know if I had that exact shoe or not, but I remember I had these white shoes that had the gold. They were Nikes. And they had the gold little things on the bottom that looked like springs. Mm. I wonder if it was the same shoe. And you're right. It did not make me faster. Yeah, it probably was. There's like four little pillars in the back that are supposed to be springs. Yeah, it sounds familiar. Yeah. The complaint by the residents of Peckham was followed up by the Morning Chronicle with a a summary of some of the alarming incidents that had apparently occurred in the villages surrounding London. Author J.S. Mackley would sum up the rest of the sightings attributed to Jack, writing, quote, In Richmond, there were reports of females being frightened to death and children torn to pieces by the supposed unearthly visitant. In Ham and Petersham, he appeared as a devilish imp where neither man, woman, nor child durst venture beyond the threshold of their domiciles without a lantern and a thick club stick. Afterwards, an unearthly warrior clad in armor of polished brass with spring shoes and large claw gloves was seen in Hampton Wick and Hampton Court. In Bushy Park, Teddington, Twickenham, Witten, and Hounslow, he was seen to frighten children and adolescents as well as leaping over the high walls. In Cutthroat Lane in Isleworth, a carpenter named Jones was assaulted by the ghost wearing steel armor and bright red shoes. When the carpenter fought back, the ghost was joined by two others who shredded his clothes as they fought. In Ealing, he injured a blacksmith by tearing his flesh with iron claws. In Hammersmith, he attacked a pie seller, and children reported seeing an unearthly being dancing by moonlight on the green in front of Kensington Palace. Furthermore, it was reported that the wager, according to which Spring John plays his pranks, runs that he is to kill six females with fright. Six hundred are nearly dead at the idea of it already, reported the West Kent Guardian on January 13th, 1838. So now there are children who are like, yeah, not only did we see that guy like running around the streets, like jumping around, scaring people, but we also saw him by himself under the full moon dancing around in front of the palace, like Kensington Palace, wearing his armor. Yeah, I mean... This is just, at first I thought this was like a demon. I thought this was like a haunted story. But now I think that this is literally just a crazy fucking weirdo. <laughs> and that makes it so much more interesting and scary to me. Because like to pull off these, this is Scooby-Doo. This yes. is literally Scooby-Doo to pull off these feats, right? Like you ha like to make it look like there's a, a bull running towards you and then it disappears. To make it look like a bear jumped into the air and disappeared. Um, to make it appear as if your skin turned from white to black, like all of this. 
And it's literally just Scooby-Doo because I'm like, just fucking catch this guy. Yeah. How hard can this be, right? Like, right. can not all of the residents of this town just get together and be like, look, we're poor. Uh, this sucks. Let's, like, at least get rid of this fucking asshole. Yeah. And so everyone just, like, get together tonight. Uh, open up your doors. And all at the same time, like, if you see that bitch, just fucking throw a net on him. It's Scooby-Doo. Right, right. Yeah, let's set up something where he walks into an air like he sees a piece of candy laying on the ground he walks up to it and now a rope snaps around his ankle and like yeah hoists him up into the just air just bait like yeah. like have a, a a frail looking woman alone walking down the street just like aimlessly for hours and everyone just is like hiding spying on her waiting for this spring-heeled jack to come fuck with her and then they'll all just like throw a net on this guy and rip his helmet off and be like, fuck you and pee on him or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, that also adds a layer of mystery because you think they would have been able to catch him by now, right? Um, especially because so many people are so invested in this story and so outraged by it. And I do want to point out, so some of the areas where this guy is seen include Hammersmith, which if you remember yeah, the from, Hammersmith ghost. from the episode about the Hammersmith ghost, and if you guys don't know what we're talking about, you got to go back and listen to that episode. Just That's search. where I have heard of Spring Hill Jack before. It was probably from that episode. Maybe, but in that episode, spoiler alert, if you haven't listened, skip ahead two minutes from now. Um, in that episode, the townsfolk did form vigilante groups and they ended up accidentally killing a dude that was just like I'm gonna run around with a sheet over my head and pretend to be the Hammersmith ghost and then that guy turned into the ghost remember oh yeah yeah, yeah. it but, was like a very ironic but I, story I feel like I've seen you showed me a picture of like a rooftop with like a, a character that it looked like you know a little devil on the roof and it was supposed to be the spring-heeled jack and he had like pointy shoes on with heels Look, now I'm going to have to go back and listen to it. But if I did, then I planned this all perfectly because now it ties in to the Hammersmith ghost. Now, the Hammersmith ghost happened in the early 1800s. This story t starts in 1837. And now, at this point in the story, we're up to 1864. But now we're going forward to the 1900s. And this fucking entity is still around, still wreaking havoc. Okay, that's, yeah, it can't be the same person then because they would be dead. Or is it a ghost, Natalia? Ghosts can't die. They're already dead. On page 319 of the book Emergence of a Phenomenon, the author writes, Sightings of the same or a similar figure reportedly occurred in September of 1904 in Everton, England. A Mrs. Hudson, noting a large shadow cast from the street onto her wall, looked outside and saw what she thought was an enormous bat. It reappeared at exactly the same time the next evening, and now Mrs. Hudson got a better look at it. It was not a bat. It was a man dressed in a flowing cloak and black boots. Seems like that's a hard mistake to make. <laughs> a bat or a man dressed in a cloak and boots. <laughs> she watched him pass down the street with a series of high leaps. Her neighbors also saw the strange figure, and one remembered stories of Spring-Heeled Jack from her youth. Later in the week, Jack frightened two sets of girls, springing in front of them, laughing maniacally, and then bounding away. One afternoon, in front of 100 witnesses, he leapt 25 feet from the roof of a building and jumped from rooftop to rooftop. Police searches found no further trace of the assailant. A hundred people saw this fucking Batman jump from the ground to the rooftop, 25 feet up, and then jump across a bunch of roofs and out of sight. Yeah, I mean, I'm getting angry with these people, like, catch this guy. I want to become a detective at this time and be praised. Like, it, seriously, it couldn't be that hard. 
Unless it's a ghost, Natalia. Why are you taking the skeptic position this episode? It Maybe they were trying to catch him, but then he just disappears and you can't get him. Because I'm just mad at this guy for like being doing this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's just, it's very bizarre. I really can't stress enough. Like, I, like you, there's no motive. And that's right. why I'm getting like, let's just fucking catch it. Like, okay, if it's a ghost, like exercise it, like get it away, like whatever it is. Right. Like, like cleanse, smudge the whole town. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I, I feel for these people who are living in this shitty town and you know they're they're already they have like zero privileges in their life and now they have to deal with this fuckery yeah and well and that's like if if we do think it's just a random bored aristocrat that makes it even more infuriating right like yeah he just has the free time and wealth to like go do this shit for 60 years or to like do it and then pass it down to his son or something and be like now it's your turn to run around <laughs> oh in a god. suit of armor and oh my god and a bat's cloak and these it's, weird shoes I made. It's an M. Night Shyamalan film <laughs> where it's like, oh, at the end, we realize this is like a family tradition of haunted people who <laughs> just like have to pass down this uh, duty where they just like scare poor people. Right. To keep like the simulation in balance or something. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, your guess is as good as mine. Oh, but I remember what I what my point was about the Hammersmith ghost. So in that story of the Hammersmith ghost, people did form vigilante bands and tried to go like nab that guy. One of those people in the vigilante band accidentally shot a dude that was just playing around and then he went to jail for it. Remember? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if people around this area had that memory still like fresh in their minds because right. it also happened in the 19th and century. And they're like, I'm not going to go to jail exactly. for a spring Jack. Yeah, like I'm not going to go to jail because I think it's the devil, but like on the off chance it's just a dude in like a Batman suit. I am not going to be the one to like kill this person and then now have to go to jail. Mm -hmm. Part three, unconfirmed possible sightings of spring Jack. Um, in this story, I really cannot emphasize enough. I read a lot of sightings, but there are even more. And some of them I chose not to mention because I'm like, is that the same thing? Is it not? I don't know. And then other ones, like other sightings, it's hard to tell like if publications have just taken one of the ones I already read and then like switched it up or got some of the facts mixed around. Yeah. Or maybe I got some of the facts mixed around. I tried to read directly from newspapers, but what if the newspaper mixed right. the facts As around? As we know, the media is very sensationalist already in 2022. And then we go back a hundred years and it's even less accountable. Well, and something cool that I'll talk about later is that this story of spring Jack is historically thought to be the very first Victorian urban legend. Oh, that's Isn't super that cool? exciting. Yeah. yeah. So at, like one of the hallmarks of urban legends is that you don't know what's real and what's not, right? Like because the story becomes so embellished and infamous and people add things and take away things and you're like, you know, is this really part of the urban legend or is it not? So I think that's another thing that makes this so convoluted. So I chose to start the story in 1837 because that's where like a lot of the newspaper articles start. But technically in 1817, there were a series of ghost sightings of a quote unquote peculiar leaping man who was seen by women wandering the streets alone at night. In these sightings, the women make it clear, however, that they believe the man is some sort of ghostly entity and not a human of flesh and blood that could touch them. Interesting. On January 21st, 1826, the popular newspaper, the Northampton Mercury, published a report of a quote-unquote 
person nightly appearing in a mask in Southampton who has been fired at without effect, being enveloped in steel armor, he also wears a pair of spring boots, which enable him to vault over a 10-foot wall. I know that, like, the point of this is for me to be like, wow, that is so scary. But I'm just really, like, I really want those shoes. Yeah. <laughs> to be able to vault over a 10-foot wall. Right. Like, ima- oh, my God. Like, imagine how fucking cool that feels. One of my favorite things about, like, jumping the horses is for a moment you're like, this is insane. I'm running much faster than I could as a person. And I'm also outside, you know, because it's not as fun to do it as in a car. And I'm like <laughs> jumping f- like several feet up into the air. Like it feels like forbidden, you and, know? And the crisp air is like yeah. really like energizing you and you can breathe deeply yes. and feel at one with like nature. nature. Now imagine if you didn't need a horse to achieve that exactly. feeling. You're just fucking jumping over shit, running super fast. Yeah. It's parkour to the extreme. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought that up because we're going to talk about parkour later. Parkour is haunted? It is now. Now, this is part four, the final part of the episode, the theories. Theory number one, an alien. This theory, I didn't come up with this. I know you're not going to believe me, but this is not one that I came up with. Theory number one is that it's just someone dressed up (laughs) fucking with people. No, there's too many theories. Theory, Theory number one, an alien. This theory comes from the book I quoted earlier called The Emergence of a Phenomenon. The author writes, quote, The UFO age boasts one story of a spring heel jack-like figure. At 2.30 a.m. on June 18, 1953, three persons seeking to escape the heat by sitting on the front porch of a Houston apartment of a Houston apartment house saw one of them related quote a huge shadow crossed the lawn I thought that at first it was the magnified reflection of a big moth caught in the nearby street light this is Batman <laughs> then the shadow seemed to bounce upward into a pecan tree the three then saw the figure of a man dressed in gray or black tight-fitting clothes there was a dim gray light all around him he was about six and a half feet tall looked like a white man and was wearing a black cape, skin-tight pants, and quarter-length boots. That is Batman. So far, this sounds like an excellent description of Spring-Heeled Jack, but witness Hilda Walker adds this one un-Jack-like detail. Quote, I could see him plain and could see he had big wings folded at his shoulders, not a cloak. Fifteen minutes later, the figure just, quote-unquote, melted away into the tree. The witnesses then heard a loud swoosh across the street and saw a rocket-shaped object shoot upward, trailing white smoke. Moments later, they and a fourth witness who was arriving observed a, quote-unquote, flying paintbrush with a fiery tail as it flew along the northeastern horizon. Police officers and reporters who interviewed the witnesses noted that they seemed sincere and obviously upset. At the time, no connection was made between this incident and the earlier and largely forgotten tales of Spring Hill Jack. Jack would not enter UFO lore until 1961 in the November-December 1960 issue of England's Flying Saucer Review. Editor Waveney Gervin noted George Adamski's claim that there are extraterrestrials in our midst, adding, quote, If Adamski and others are telling the truth about these visitors, then surely there must be evidence that can be produced. And he challenged UFO enthusiasts to find that evidence. One immediate result was Jay Viner's article, The Mystery of Spring Heel. Jack in the March-April 1961 issue of the Fortean Times News. He has this explanation of why Jack behaved as he did. 
quote, air crew bailed out over hostile territory. Strange the suggestion of evasion, living off the land, stealing clothes and food. Hard to find the safe house where lives the agent who can put him on the road home. He theorizes that Jack made his final escape on the night of July 6, 1838, when Inspector Hemer of the Liverpool Police saw a ball of fire dissolve over a field. The phenomenon in question is now thought in modern times to have been a case of ball lightning. Yeah, I was just going to say ball lightning. Also, but how is this thing using ball lightning? Ball lightning is haunted, as we know. No time to explain. No time to is. explain. Go back, listen to spontaneous human combustion. Um, so this, well, let me just explain what this theory is saying. Because there's like, you got to make several leaps of logic. First of all, now we have to believe that this is also happening well into the 1950s, which I'm already on board with, because why not? This That makes as much sense as anything involving a knight in shining armor with like a long bat cloak. But this guy's saying, hey, this lady saw this weird thing. And now in modern times that we like have, because this is the 1950s, we like have more exposure to crime. We have more exposure. Like we've gone through the industrial revolution. Like we're smarter, we're living longer. We're more readily able to recognize things for what they are. This lady says it wasn't a cloak. She thought it was a cloak at first, but then he spread the cloak and it was like bat wings. And then this thing shot up into the sky, leaving a trail of smoke behind like a rocket and just disappearing. And this author who's super into extraterrestrials is like, honestly, what could that be? Alien. It sounds like the thing from Jeepers Creepers. What thing? Did you see Jeepers Creepers? I don't know. Refresh my memory. Uh, it's about those like teenagers and they're on a school bus and it's like haunted and there's like... Like this alien that comes to life every like few years oh. and it's like let me just show you a picture and it yeah, like show me it eats people and it like takes part of their bodies but it like has wings okay i'm gonna show you a picture so that's what he looks like with his wings out but wait you gotta see oh shit you gotta see what he like he's got this like long jacket thing on and okay so that's what he looks like underneath there yes oh my god this does look like how i imagine spring-heeled jack and then that's he, like he a wears... lizard yeah it looks like an alien yeah like an alien Van Helsing Batman. Oh, yeah. That's fucked up. Yeah. I'm showing her pictures of Jeepers Creepers, which I guess they just redid it. There was one that came out in 2022. Have not seen it yet. I'm not talking about that one. I'm talking about the one from a long time ago. That sucks, probably. But I remember <laughs> it being scary. And if you guys want to see key images from this episode, I will post um, pictures of Spring-Heeled Jack and people mentioned, like historical figures mentioned in this episode. And also I will post a picture of that Jeepers Creepers piece of shit thing that like looks like a demon Van Helsing vampire Batman um, to at let's get haunted on Instagram that to me maybe seeing that image I can see the connection between alien and spring-heeled Jack because that's exactly what that looks like that thing that you just showed me yeah it's like if a grasshopper decided that they were going to become a person yeah. <laughs> all right theory number two have you ever heard of this I'd never heard of this a phantom attacker. Is it what it sounds like? Yeah, but the uh, reason- uh, Getting attacked by a phantom? Yeah, but when, I, okay, when I saw this theory, I got really excited because this is the first time I've ever heard that phrase. And that that phrase, those two words together, apparently refer to a specific category of cryptid known as phantom attackers. Oh. Which I'm, I'm always on board with new cryptids. Yeah, never heard of that. So according to Wikipedia, Typical phantom attackers appear to be human and may be perceived as prosaic criminals, but may display extraordinary abilities, as in Spring-Heeled Jack's jumps, 
which it is widely noted would break the ankles of a human who tried to replicate them. The phantom attacker also cannot be caught by authorities. Victims commonly experience the attack in their bedrooms, homes, or other seemingly secure enclosures that they are familiar with. They may report being pinned or paralyzed, or on the other hand, describe a siege in which they fought off a persistent intruder or intruders. One of the most notable types of phantom attackers is the night hag phenomenon. Recorded in folklore and recognized by psychologists as a form of hallucination, and in the most problematic cases, an attack of a phantom attacker is witnessed by several people and substantiated by some physical evidence, but the attacker cannot be verified to exist. Uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a cryptid. Well, it sounds like it could be either. They're kind of making it sound like phantom cobwebs, you know, like when you're walking around um, and you feel like there's a spider web on your face, but then there's no spider web. And then you're like, oh, it was just a phantom cobweb. Like I just imagined it. Or like, oh, a phantom, my phone vibrated. And like you th like think that your phone vibrated, but it didn't. They call that like a phantom phone call or whatever. Um, but I had always thought of those as like you imagined it sort of. But this is making me now think that perhaps there is an entity that is making your phone vibrate and you actually felt like your phone like vibrate in another dimension or something like that. Or these cobwebs, you didn't just imagine it. They were phantom cobwebs. I believe it. Theory number three, a ghost. Some theorize that the abilities demonstrated by Spring-Heeled Jack could only have been accomplished by a ghost. Particularly, his uncanny ability of materializing and dematerializing, sometimes even evaporating into solid objects such as trees and walls. He also is able to fly at great heights, leaping almost weightlessly between very long distances, including the account of him leaping 25 feet from the ground to a rooftop. Also supporting the idea that he could be a ghost is that he's just generally super creepy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of this theory? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It could be a ghost. It really could be. I just had a new theory that I thought of. Um, what if this is like a time traveler who's like fucking with these people, oh. right? But because they're traveling from a time where the technology was not as advanced as it is today, they're still using things like spring heels and uh, like ball lightning controlled devices. So like he's from an alternate, like a parallel universe time traveler. And he like in the in his universe, like the industrial revolution, like just went totally haywire because physics are different there. And like yeah. they invented spring heeled shoes and like weird helmets that spit fire at you. Yeah, exactly. He's like an astronaut from a different dimension. So we'll say that's theory three and a half because I didn't have that theory. Three and a half, a time traveler. Theory number four, a demon or the devil himself. A lot of people who heard the stories of Spring-Heeled Jack wholeheartedly believed him to be a demon or even a devil. According to the website waterfordtreasures.com, quote, Jack became a fixture of gossip and storytelling across the country. Over time, an entire mythology was written to explain his mysterious appearance, and in the gothic setting of Victorian London, he became the villain in several Penny Dreadfuls, which are short plays shown in cheap theaters at the time. Many believed him to be the devil incarnate, come to terrorize Londoners, and in Punch and Judy shows, the devil was renamed Spring-Heeled Jack. 
Oh, wow. Much like the boogeyman, it became common for parents to warn children off their bad behavior by suggesting the spring-heeled Jack would come to get them. And over time, he became the feature of comic books and plays as an avenger of wrongdoing, which is very different to the beginnings of his character. Yeah. Basically, in this theory, like a lot of people, they're like, this is the devil. Only the devil could have these powers. And then it became so pervasive in their culture that even these, have you ever heard of Penny Dreadfuls? Yeah. Like it's like you pay a penny and you see like a shitty little show on the street. Right. But they were called Penny Dreadfuls because they're scary. And so that just like further shows like how super into like the macabre Victorian people were. Like they were fucking salivating over crime and mayhem and agony and grief and like all of these terrible emotions. Like they they were were, haunties. They were haunties. Absolutely. The original haunties, some might say. And even in like the super infamous Punch and Judy show, which which was essentially like a puppet show between these two characters that would be like fighting and it would be really silly. And it was often for kids, but also adults could watch it. Um, There was a character that would always show up in Punch and Judy shows that was supposed to be the devil. But after this story got super popular, all Punch and Judy shows just renamed the devil character to Spring-Heeled Jack. Mm. So he became eventually synonymous with the devil anyway. Theory number five. Now you touched upon this pretty early on. A mentally ill villager. This one comes from davidcastleton.net who writes that at least the more recent reports of Spring-Heeled Jack, particularly the ones occurring in Liverpool in 1904, can be rationally explained as the antics of a mentally ill man who lived in the area. Quote, 60 years after the event, a Mrs. Pierpont, who had lived in the neighborhood all her life, said that Jack was nothing more than a local man who was slightly off balance mentally and had formed a religious mania and was often known to climb onto the rooftops of nearby houses, crying out, my wife is the devil. Quote, they usually fetched the police or a fire engine ladder to get him down. As the police closed in on him, he would leap from one house rooftop to the next. That's what gave rise to the spring-heeled Jack rumors, said Mrs. Pierpont. So this is a person who literally is just on the rooftops bouncing around saying their wife is the devil. Yeah. But well, that doesn't sound like Spring-Heeled Jack. Where's yeah, the suit of armor? Talk. Suit of armor, missing. Red shoes, missing. Um, spitting blue flames into the faces of women, missing. Um, disappearing into trees and shooting up like a rocket into space, missing. I feel like we should still investigate that guy, though, that's saying oh, yeah. his wife is the devil. Well, he's dead now. But yeah, we should have. <laughs> we should have <laughs> investigated. Theory number six. One or more bored aristocrats. This theory comes from a Mr. Thomas Lott of Bow Lane, who in January of 1838 wrote into the London Times newspaper that he knew who Spring-Heeled Jack was. He wrote, Some individual gentleman, as he has been designated, drives about with a livery servant in cab and throwing off a cloak appears in these frightful forms and is to win a wager by the joke. So this is what I, we talked about earlier where like there's this theory that a bunch of aristocrats got together and they were bored and they were like, hey, you lost this bet. This is what you have to do now. You have to like morph into this terrifying creature that takes on different forms and different animals and scares the shit out of everybody. A point towards this theory is the following. Natalia, do you remember the servant boy who opened the door when he heard someone knocking on it and then it turned out it was Spring-Heeled Jack yeah, and he, like, and he threw just off took his cloak. cloak off and like flashed him and ran off? Yeah. yeah, I remember that. So the servant claims that the visitor had a claw-like hand 
and his clothing was adorned with a family crest with the letter W embroidered on his costume. This detail led many to believe that the culprit behind the hauntings was none other than the Marchess of Waterford. Who was the Marchess of Waterford, you might be asking? This guy was so batshit insane that his nickname was the Mad Marchess. This dude was literally a nobleman born into the aristocracy and life was too easy for him so he got bored and started committing weird crimes and because he was so rich he was untouchable. In one incident, he apparently got naked in the middle of the street and started challenging people to fight him in some sort of fight club. He also tried to form a literal Victorian underground fight club. Also, have you ever heard the phrase paint the town red? Like we're gonna go paint the town red tonight? Um, if you haven't heard of it, it's a phrase that basically means we're going out and we're gonna get rowdy. Well, this phrase was actually coined because of some of the weird shit the Marchess did. According to Wikipedia, in the early hours of Thursday, April 6, 1837, Henry Beresford, the third Marchess of Waterford, and his fox hunting friends arrived in Melton Mowbray at the Thorpe End Tollgate. They had been drinking heavily at Croxton races, and understandably, the tollkeeper asked to be paid before he opened the gate for them. Sadly for him, some repairs were underway, and ladders, brushes, and pots of red paint were lying nearby. The Marchess and his cronies seized these and attacked the tollkeeper, painting him and a constable who tried to intervene with the color red. They then nailed up the door of the toll house and painted that red too before moving into the town carrying the stolen equipment. That is actually, I know I know this is like destructive and painful and like not, you know, not funny, but it actually is a hilarious idea to think of people just going through town drunk, like painting buildings, other colors. And they rampaged down Beast Market through the marketplace and into Burton Street, painting doors as they passed, pulling on door knockers and knocking over flower pots. At the Red Lion Inn, they pulled down the sign and threw it into the canal. At the old... Oh, well, now they're just being annoying. Yeah, now they're just like destruction of property, right? At the Old Swan Inn in the marketplace, next to what is now the Grapes, the Marchese was hoisted onto the shoulders of another man to paint the carved swan in sign with red paint. They also vandalized the post office and the Leicester Banking Company before trying to overturn a caravan in which the caravan driver was fast asleep. Solitary policemen tried to intervene at intervals and were beaten up and also painted red for their trouble. Eventually, more police arrived in numbers and seized one of the men, Edward Reynard, who was put in the Bridewell prison. The others promptly returned and rescued him, breaking through three locks and beating two constables, threatening them with murder if they did not give them the key to the cell. The following day, there was an uproar when the Marchess of Waterford finally sobered up. He'd he agreed to pay for all of the damage to people and property, but the group were still brought to trial before the Derby Assize Court in July 1838. They were found not guilty of riot, but were fined $100 each for common assault, a considerable sum of money back then. Following the incident, the phrase, paint the town red, entered the vernacular. That's an interesting story. Um, however, uh, I feel like that guy sounds crazy enough that he just might have the resources and the time to do some of these uh, pranks 
as spring Jack. Oh, yeah. And that one is just, like, the coolest of the stories. But he did other shit, too. According to WaterfordTreasures.com, some of his famous exploits included staging equestrian feats in living rooms. So, like, bringing horses into people's living rooms and then, like, making them jump around the furniture and, like, break shit. <laughs> Breaking and entering at Eton to steal the birch cane of one particularly zealous teacher and filling a first-class carriage with chimney sweeps to offend the stuffier attendees of one meeting. That is That's kind of cool. That's hilarious. He was a regular feature of newspapers during this time for his loutish behavior, which was generally well outside of what would have been considered gentlemanly. He was often publicly drunk, was known to do almost anything for a bet, used his money and connections to avoid prosecution. He was in London in 1837 while these attacks were taking place. So it could be, since he was already known to attack women, he was already known to be a dick and take on bets and like do a bunch of public destruction for no reason. Yeah. Like there's no gain. He's just bored. He's just bored. So... And the fact, so that coupled with the fact that he was known to be in London during the time makes a lot of, and, and the servant boy saw uh, an embroidered W family crest. Yeah. Leads people to believe maybe it could be that guy. I think it's a combination. I think that like, this is an urban legend, right? So it started off and there really were like a paranormal things that happened that no one can explain that could have been any one of the theories that we talked about yeah. you know it could have been an alien it could have been a time traveler it could have been a phantom attacker or whatever it could have been any of those things and then I think that now that that area has sort of this darkness attached to it or this supernatural entity attached to it I do think that man uh, that Marchess or whatever he is. Of yeah, Marchess of uh, Waterford, yeah. Yeah, I think that he was probably like, oh, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pretend to just be this entity to scare the shit out of these people. It's kind of like how um, we do, okay, like, so it would be like someone during Halloween time putting on a Jason mask and like trying to scare little kids or like, try, you know what I mean? Like right. going and uh, posing as a ghost or whatever. I kind of feel like that's, what this is like it's like if you went to new jersey and pretended to be the jersey devil to like scare some people or something right but, but i think it's a combination i don't think it's like just a hoax i think there's also at one time there were supernatural entities i would agree with that now interestingly there is one other notable family that had a w in their crest and that was the duke of wellington's family and interestingly, the Duke of Wellington had formed a vigilante group during this time, saying that he was trying to catch Springheel Jack. Now, the only downside to this theory, so like people are like, why was he so like, why would a Duke want to catch this guy? Like this is beneath him. He already lives a cushy life. Like who gives a shit? And he was the other family that had a W crest because poor people didn't have crests. Mm -hmm. You'd have to be like someone of stature. Um, but the only point against this is that the Duke of Wellington was in his 70s while this was happening that's kind of badass because like we just talked about the average lifespan was pretty short was like half of that and in his 70s he formed this vigilante group and he would ride around on horseback like trying to catch this guy yeah i mean i think it's like i said like this area is infamous it has this spring-heeled jack and so like all of these other rich people are like oh let's like go play with the poor people over there because there's nothing else to do right you know theory number seven in urban legend this story is often called the victorian era's first urban legend According to isleofdogslife.wordpress.com, 
In many areas, especially London, Spring-Heeled Jack became a boogeyman figure used to frighten children so that they would behave. According to Wikipedia, skeptical investigators have dismissed the stories of Spring-Heeled Jack as mere mass hysteria, which developed around various stories and urban legends of a boogeyman or devil which have been around for centuries, or from exaggerated urban myths about a man who clambered over rooftops claiming that the devil was chasing him. Many theorize that the legend of Spring-Heeled Jack gave working-class people living in bad conditions something to direct their anger at. It is sometimes easier to blame one's misfortunes on something abjectly evil like the devil than it is to acknowledge the greater socioeconomic factors in class systems which systematically prevent one's upward mobility in society. Mmm, thinks too nerdy. Okay. Theory number eight. <laughs> Let's not even give it the time of day. Theory number eight. A bunch of different dudes committed a bunch of different crimes that were then lumped together into crimes committed by Spring-Heeled Jack. So interestingly, after Jane Alsop was attacked by Jack, the police actually did have two prime suspects in that attack. One was a bricklayer named Payne and the other was a carpenter named Milbank. Um, neither of them were ever able to be charged, but the reason why they were brought to police's attention is because a coachman named James Smith, who was in the area of the assault, reported seeing both men near the scene of the crime. Author Mike Dash goes on to write of these two men, quote, the testimony of James Smith seemed particularly devastating. He said that he had been walking up Bearbinder Lane when he heard screams coming from Bearbinder Cottage. Hurrying on, he had met Payne and Milbank walking away from the house. Milbank was wearing a white hat and a white shooting jacket. Moreover, Smith asserted that he had come across the two men again later in the same evening and overheard the following extremely incriminating conversation. Payne said to the other, It was rascally, wasn't it? I would not have it done upon any account. James Smith then said that Payne's came up to him and said, What have you to say to Spring Jack? I desired him to leave my wheel alone, and then Payne came and took him away. I went into the Morgan's Arms public house, and they followed me in, and went into either the top room or the parlor. I inquired of the landlord who the man in the shooting jacket was, and he said that his name was Milbank, and that he had resided nearly opposite to his house. I have no doubt but that the man Milbank was the person who had so frightened the Mrs. Alsop. However, they were actually taken to court for this and there was no evidence to convict them other than this hearsay of the coachman. And there were other people who were thought to be at the root of these attacks. For instance, a shoemaker named Richardson, who had also been in Bearbinder Lane, was also accused because he was seen with a cloak and he was known to laugh in a joking manner. And apparently one night he said something like, oh, Spring-Heeled Jack is in the alleyway. Don't go over there. And then everyone was like, there's no one in the alley but him. Like, is he talking about himself? So then everyone was like, maybe he is Spring-Heeled Jack. But again, he was never proven to be Spring-Heeled Jack. And there were a bunch of other dudes that were suspected, but never, nothing ever came of it. Theory number nine, a perverted steampunk magician weirdo that's really into parkour. <laughs> is it possible that some bored dude with too much money and not enough empathy thought it would be funny to scare the shit out of a bunch of working class women while assaulting them? Is it also possible that this weirdo was super buff and super into parkour and also into steampunk? Is it possible that he was also a magician who figured out a way to make fire come from his mouth and or his weird steampunk helmet? Is it also possible that this magician parkour rich guy fashioned himself some go-go gadget spring shoes? Who's to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
t- that's like I feel like one. Uh, it, I feel like it's a combination of those. I think the first two theories that I said um, about it actually being an entity, and then that place becoming famous for it, and then these like weird rich people like wanting to be have fun with it, and so they like just fashion these shoes and fuck around, or maybe they take turns. I don't know. My favorite theory out of all of those is that there was some supernatural component to it because I especially like the 1950s report where this thing just like shoots into the sky like a rocket. I love the idea of it being an alien, but I also kind of uh, like the idea of this just being a fucking weirdo who maybe was really good at inventing shit and I don't know and maybe he also had powers yeah go go gadget yeah or if he was a magician maybe he just knew sleight of hand and like trick mirrors and used fog and lights to like trick people into thinking he was doing shit that he wasn't yeah scooby-doo yeah well natalia i'm gonna end this episode by showing you some pictures of springheel jack illustrations of the time that i would like you to describe to people and then i want to hear what your favorite theory or favorite moment from the episode was so first let me show you absolutely bizarre illustrations here you go oh wow yeah i mean these look like a devil it's funny because i now understand why devils are like drawn the way they are pointy chin pointy ears uh little pointy toes he's flying around he's got horns he's got a little goatee he's very devilish and uh he's very flamboyant like in a lot of these he's got his arms up like showing off like look i have a little bat leg cape thing it's um yeah it is and he's kind of like doing a jig in all of these like sort of like dancing i think that's why people characterized him as an imp as well like he's very impish very like he's giggling maniacally all the time as he's like tearing at people's flesh yeah, I um you guys go to Let's Get Haunted on Instagram and look at these pictures and let us know what you think because this is a pointy dude. So Natalia, what what is one moment from this episode that is gonna stick with you? <sighs> I think it might be that Marches of Waterford, like he is having a debate with some people in the aristocracy. He was like at a meeting and he disagreed with them and they come out and they find that their carriage is just full of <laughs> dirty chimney sweeps who are confused. They've probably just been paid. Like he's yeah. probably just like, hey, can you go sit in this car for 20 minutes? Uh, here's like, you know, five bucks. Yeah. And they're just like, okay. So they go over there and sit there and then these like, you know, stuffy aristocrats come out and they're like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. this is just like all kinds of layers of fucked up. Exactly. Yeah, that was that was one of my favorites, too. Yeah, great episode. I'm really Thank interested um, in finding out what everyone else thinks of what the spring Jack is, because there's a lot of evidence and there's a lot of stories. And it's, yeah, infamous, I think, now. Yeah. Would you like to give our sign-off? Sure. BRB going to go fashion some springs into my shoes so I can leap over nine-foot-tall walls into the distance while wearing a cape and doing a jig. Bye. Bye. Sources for this episode include all sources mentioned during the episode, plus the following a web.archive.org capture of Mike Dash's website, Part 1, The Legend of Springheeled Jack, an essay posted to ukessays.com, 
entitled, Why Was Crime Fiction So Popular in the 19th Century? An article entitled, From Macadam to Asphalt, The Paving of the Streets of London in the Victorian Era, Part 1, From Macadam to Stone Set, published to the Greater London Industrial Archaeological Society website found at glias.org.uk. The article, Dirty Old London, A History of the Victorians' Infamous Filth, published to npr.org. The Wikipedia article for Spring-Heeled Jack. The Wikipedia article for 19th Century London. Newspapers.com. A clip from the Morning Chronicle of London, Greater London, England, published on January 9th, 1838. Page 4 of the newspaper. Article on Spring-Heeled Jack. A paper entitled Spring-Heeled Jack, the Terror of London, published to the Journal of Contemporary Gothic Studies, found on pages 1 through 20, by author J.S. Mackley. You can find this article on nectar.northampton.ac.uk. A website called waterfordtreasures.com, the five museums in the Viking Triangle. An article on that website entitled Spring-Heeled Jack, Notorious Urban Legend or the Work of the Mad Marchess of Waterford. An article published to cs.mcgill.ca entitled Spring-Heeled Jack. A blog post entitled Spring-Heeled Jack, Did a Fire-Breathing Phantom Haunt Victorian London? Published to davidcastleton.net. The book The Emergence of a Phenomenon, published to ignacio.arnaude.com. Specifically, the section entitled Spring-Heeled Jack, beginning on page 318. And all other sources already mentioned during the episode. Thank you very much and see you next week. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.